Good morning. Welcome to our 11 o'clock worship. I'm Pastor Stephen, the teaching pastor of Calvary Baptist Church here in Phillipsburg, Kansas. For those that you are, for those of you who are following our podcast, we are a Reformed Baptist Confessional Church. We are in Phillipsburg, Kansas, which is located about 30 minutes south of the Nebraska-Kansas line and North Central Kansas. Today we continue our series through 1 Peter. This is the second week uh, that we will address this wonderful letter written by the wonderful apostle. Uh, We're going to read verses 3 through 9 this morning, but we're only going to cover verses 3 and 4. So if you have your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, let's pick up reading in verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold than perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When the apostle Peter wrote this particular section of his letter, the only punctuation mark that's used up until the end of verse seven are commas. That's right. In verses three through nine, only two punctuations appear, commas and periods. The first period in the Greek appears at the end of verse seven after Peter uses the name resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the first period. So from verses 3 through 6, these verses, Peter only uses a comma. What that tells me, as I'm reading the Greek New Testament, preparing this lesson, and I see all these commas used in verses 3 through 7, and then finally at the end of chapter 7, the first period, What that tells me is that Peter is using a series of subordinate clauses to modify one main clause. And the main clause that Peter is trying to teach that he's focusing on is blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the main theme of this section. Everything else that's written in verses 3 through 9 about the blessedness of God the Father modifies 
why he's blessed. So Peter in verses 3 through 9 is going to give us, give us a series of clauses that describe and reveal how God the Father is blessed. But before we get into the reasons why God the Father is exists in a state of blessedness, we need to first look at the word blessed first. The word that Peter uses for blessed here is our English word eulogy. Uh, the Greek word is eulogetos. Uh, we know what a eulogy is. A eulogy is a speech given for the dead at their funeral. It's an expression of praise for who that person was when he was alive, and it's a list of accomplishments of what that person did while they were alive. It's what a eulogy is. And Peter uses that word to describe God the Father. He is blessed, and, and what we're going to read is a eulogy about him. Not because God is dead, but this eulogy consists of a series of praise for who he is and what God has done. In the New Testament, uh, the word eulogetos appears seven times. Seven times. The first appearance is in Mark chapter 14, verse 61. Jesus is arrested in the garden against Gethsemane. He appears in the middle of the night before the high priest. The high priest asks Jesus a series of questions. Jesus does not respond. And then finally in verse 61, the scripture says, the high priest asks Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Obviously, the Jews use the term eulegetos, blessed, to refer to God the Father. The high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the one who we believe is the son of the blessed, of the God of the universe? Are you his son? Then in Luke chapter 1, verse 68, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, said of God, blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. The rest of Luke chapter 1, this speech of Zechariah contains a list of subordinate clauses, just like 1 Peter chapter 1. Zechariah says, the Lord God of Israel is blessed. Well, why? Because he says he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He spoke by the mouth of the prophets. We are saved from our enemies. And so Zechariah, in this song of praise in chapter 1 of Luke, described God's blessedness and then why he is blessed. Because he does all these things for us. This is who he is, and this is what he does, and this is why he exists in a state of blessedness. The term blessed also appears several times in the New Testament letters. Twice, Paul uses the term in Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verse 25, Paul says, 
that God is the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then in Romans chapter 9, verse 5, the apostle says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Here's something really interesting, and and I, I find these things interesting. I don't know why, but I do. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says the exact same phrase about God as Peter does in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both apostles in the exact same spot in their letters write the exact same thing of God's blessedness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31, Paul says, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever. That's four times now. Four times in the apostolic letters, the apostles referred to God as the blessed God. The blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what that tells me? That that phrase, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, was a very popular phrase in the early church. The early church often said these things at church during worship. They praised God for his blessedness. The term blessed used by the apostles referring to God is not a verb. Typically, when we think of the word being blessed, we receive something. It is is a verb. It's something done to us, something that we didn't deserve. God gave us a blessing. We are blessed by God. He's blessed us. But God is not blessed in that regard. There's nothing we can do to or for God that would add something to him. The term blessed that Peter and the apostles used is an adjective. It describes his person. It modifies the noun God. He is the blessed. Why? Because he's worthy of praise. God should be well spoken of. God should be celebrated. And Peter tells us in these subordinate clauses in verses 3 through 9 why God exists in a state of blessedness. Why his creatures, in particular humans who have the reason and the ability and the wisdom and the knowledge to praise God, why we should always be in a state of blessing the blessed God. Why should we always be speaking well of God? According to Peter, God is worthy of praise because of his great mercy, because he's caused us to be born again, because he guards our faith. He provides for us an eternal home. He strengthens our faith when we are weak. He gave us his son as a gift. These are the reasons why Peter 
says we should praise God, why he should be well spoken of. Well, I don't know why I should praise God. I, I don't know what to praise God for. Are you saved? Have you received God's mercy? Do you have saving faith? Do you expect to be received up into heaven? Are you maturing in the faith? Do you know who Jesus is? Well, yeah, I, I know all those things. Then you have reason to speak well of God. And God is worthy to be praised by you. He is worthy to receive your praise. Let's start this morning by praising God for his mercy. According to Peter, God exists in a state of blessedness because of his great mercy. Whenever the Bible speaks of God's mercy, the scripture is describing God's goodness to those who are in misery and distress. You ever notice that? You ever notice in scripture where the Bible talks about God being rich in mercy or abundant in mercy or people ask to receive God's mercy, that God would be merciful to them? Those people are always in a state of misery. They're always in a state of distress. Hebrews chapter four, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We draw to God to receive mercy, to help us in our time of need, a time of great distress. Ephesians chapter two, verse four, Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Humans, in a miserable state of distress, we are dead in our sins. But God was rich in mercy to us when we were in that great misery. Typically, when you read about God's mercy, and this is especially true in the Old Testament, God's grace and his patience are attached. They're, all three are mentioned together. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 the Lord hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. Moses asked to see God. God puts him in the cleft of the rock. The Lord passed by Moses. And this is what the Lord said. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, and slow to anger. God's mercy is also highlighted in the gospels. Very common in the gospels. Remember when those who were afflicted had come in contact with Jesus, what did they say to him? The lepers, Lord, have mercy on me. Zacharias, I'm sorry, Zacchaeus, Lord, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse three, the apostle Paul refers to God as the father of all mercies. But why is God praised because of his mercy? What is the big deal with God's mercy? The reason why God lives in a state of blessedness because of his great mercy is because he doesn't extend his mercy equally to all. That's why. 
That's the greatness of God's mercy towards his elect is that he has shown us a different level of mercy than he's shown to everyone else. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, the apostle describes how the Lord did not extend his mercy to certain angels. When the angels sinned and God cast them out of heaven, he only saved, he only preserved a certain number of those angels, the ones who did not fall. In the time of Noah, the scripture says that God showed mercy to Noah and to his household, but everyone else was drowned by the deluge, the water. In the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, God only showed his mercy to a certain people, Lot and his daughters. Everyone else was destroyed by fire. God didn't extend his mercy equally to all. Of the angels, only some. Of the people living in the days of Noah, only some. Of the people living in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, only some. And when you turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter really highlights God's selective mercy. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There's a distinguishing mark there. You have some and you have the others. God is only patient towards you. Why? So that all of you, the people that he's merciful to, the people that he's being patient with, so that you will come to repentance and faith. Not everybody else, only you, the ones that he's being patient with. You see the difference? God is selective with his saving mercy. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, quoting the Old Testament, Paul says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God does not extend his mercy equally to all. Well, how do I know I've received God's mercy? Do you believe the gospel? Do you trust the gospel by faith alone? Have you come to Christ by faith? Well, yeah. Then you've received God's saving mercy. And that has nothing to do with you according to the scripture. God does not look down on us and say, oh, well, he's deserving of my mercy. No. And that's not even close. But what does the scripture say? God will have mercy on whomever he wills. So according to Peter, the reason why God stays in an existence of blessedness and why his people have reason to praise him, to stay in a consistent, continual uh, show of praise to God because he has had mercy on us. He has decided to show us mercy. 
that while we were living in a state of misery and distress, instead of leaving us in that position, leaving us in that state, God has shown us mercy. First Peter chapter one, verses three and four also says that God stays in a state of blessedness because he is the one who actually causes us to be born again. It's God who does that. It is not you. It is not me. We do not pray to receive Jesus. We don't ask Jesus to come into our heart. We don't make him Lord. He already is. But it's the power of God who causes us to be born again. In John chapter 3, under the cover of night, the Pharisee Nicodemus meets with Jesus and says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus privately missed with Jesus and says, hey, dude, <laughs> I know there's something different about you. You're just not, you're not just a teacher. You're more than that. And the reason why I know that you're more than that is because you do all these signs and wonders. Someone who's just a teacher cannot do what you do. Obviously, there has to be more about you. And I absolutely love Jesus's response. Typically, after someone gives you a compliment, uh, you say, thank you. Hey, Pastor Stephen, I know that you're a good preacher because you have good interpretation skills. And I know that God has called you to do this. Thank you. That's nice of you to say. But when Nicodemus compliments Jesus and says to him, it's obvious that God sent you because a normal man can't do what you do. Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And until you're born again, you don't know anything about God and you don't know anything about his kingdom. What Jesus means is this. Nicodemus, I'm sure you are sincere in what you're saying about me, but none of that matters unless God changes you. Just because you think that there's something different about me, that I'm different than any other man, that I'm some great teacher, that I may be some great prophet, that God sent me down here for you just because you believe those things, that is not good enough. There's something else that has to happen. You have to be recreated. You have to be born again. Something has to change about you, and it's not physical. Because Nicodemus thinks it's physical. He tells Jesus, I must be born again. What, am I supposed to go back up with my mother and come back out again? Jesus said, it's not physical that has to change. It's internal. It's the spiritual that has to change. And that change, that spiritual change, is what Peter is addressing in chapter 1. God is worthy of praise. He lives in a state of blessedness because he is the one who actually causes that change. We refer to that change as regeneration. 
The person's spirit is no longer under the curse of death and sin. It's no longer under the curse of Adam's sin. But his spirit is recreated. It is no longer dead. It has become alive. And a man cannot accomplish this work by his own power. He is powerless to do this. Dad and mom, you are powerless to bring about this new birth in your children. You must bring them to Christ, period. Why do you think Jesus rebukes his disciples for keeping the children away from him? Not so that they could be baptized, but that so that they could be born again. God is the only one who can grant spiritual life. And what's the purpose of being born again? What is the need? What's the significance of it? Because we're all descendants of Adam. The curse of Adam's sin was not only felt by Adam and Eve in that garden. The curse of Adam's sin was passed down to all of his descendants, which we are. Therefore, as Adam's descendants, we are born into that sin. We are conceived into that sin. Scripture says in sin enter the world through one man and death spread to all men. And that's why we need to be born again. A spiritually dead person cannot enter into the presence of God. He's not alive to God. God is not alive to him. Psalm 5.4, evil cannot dwell with God. You cannot eat with God at his table if you're dead in sin. You cannot dwell with God in his presence if you're dead in sin. Therefore, you must be born again. Scripture does not say you must be well again. It is not an illness that heals itself over time. We're not merely sick. No, sin is a fatal disease. And it can only be cured by the gospel. By God using the gospel to bring about spiritual life in a spiritually dead person. We are not on a sick bed. We are in a grave. We're not barely hovering above water asking for Jesus to throw us a life vest. No, we are lifeless on the bottom of the ocean. We are dead. But God, just like we have no control over our physical birth, we have no control over our spiritual birth. The power to regenerate a spiritually dead sinner only belongs to God. It is his power. It is his will. It is his prerogative. It is his rightful claim over the sinner. Think of Lazarus. Remember him? Remember in John chapter 11, Lazarus died and he was in the tomb for several days before Jesus and his disciples made their way to him. 
when Jesus arrives at the tomb, Lazarus's body has already been wrapped. He's already been placed in the tomb. The body has already begun to give off a smell. Jesus did not say, well, I'm just going to wait until Lazarus uh, prays the sinner's prayer. Jesus did not say, well, I'm just going to wait for Lazarus to, uh, to walk that aisle uh, and to confess with his mouth. I, I'm, I'm going to wait until Lazarus can believe by his own power. No, he's dead. And that's a picture of lost people. We're, we're dead. We're not sleeping. We're dead. We are unable to impart life to our dead soul, which is laden and under the weight and curse of sin. It's impossible to do that. Lazarus had just the amount of ability to raise him from the dead, to raise himself from the dead, as we have the ability to raise us away from our, up from our spiritual death. Have you ever thought why Jesus used the name Lazarus? Why, why didn't Jesus say, Lazarus, come out? Why didn't he just say, come out? Because if Jesus would have done that and just said, come out, more than just Lazarus would have come out of that tomb. More than just Lazarus would have been raised from the dead. I, I really don't know if that's true or not. I, I just think it's cute. And um, Anyway, moving on. But you get the point. In order for Lazarus to have life, Jesus must grant it to him. And Peter, who was present on that day, remembered. And he writes to the church some 20 years later, God causes us to be born again. And it's not just be born, voila, and all of a sudden you're born. No, no. It's being born again to something. There's a purpose in this. It's not just, oh, you're born again and now go live whatever you want to live. It's being born again to a living hope. And that living hope and being born again is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Lazarus was raised from the dead right here by Jesus and Jesus did not later die and be raised from the dead, Lazarus' resurrection would have been in vain. What gives the spiritual life is Jesus. That's the foundation of this spiritual life. It's not that we're just raised up and we begin living again. It's that we're raised up to something in specific, to something particular. And it's the, it's the newness of life. It's, it's to newness of life. It's, it's to a life that's no longer burdened and under the curse of sin. It's a life of peace, a life of joy, a life of rejoicing. And we see that in our text, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Peter uses the term rejoice several times. In this, you greatly rejoice. Why? Because the newness of life. It's not the old life. 
We're not raised to, to a life that we had. We're raised to a life that's new. And a picture of this is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see that? You see what Paul is saying about the new life? That a Christian, his rebirth, his being born again, his regeneration is a picture, a physical reality is the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That as Christ was put into that ground, as he was slayed and then he was put into the ground and then he resurrected, Paul says, that is like your new birth where you become dead into sin, you become dead to unrighteousness, and when you come out of that water, it's a picture of this new life that you have, and since you have this new life, should you continue living in the old life? No. Therefore, your baptism... Your baptism, after you made a profession of faith, your baptism is a picture, it is a symbol, it is a visible demonstration of what took place in your heart. And that's why only professing believers can be baptized. Paul says we've been baptized into Christ's death, we're buried with him in that baptism, and order that so that we would be raised to newness of life. The old man dies, the new man comes up out of the grave, and now you seek to live according to that new life. And notice how Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, this new life that you have, and Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, this new life you have is all because of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, uh, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too are raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, just like we have been saved and uh, received God's mercy and caused us to be born again, it is to the praise of God's glory It's a new life. It's a new life brought about the will of God. It is his power 
on the basis of his mercy, he sees you in your pitiful, miserable estate, knowing that you're helpless, you cannot do anything to change this, and he has decided to pity you, to have mercy for you, to no longer leave you in that same dead, uh, guilty state, but, but he causes you to be born again. I hope that makes sense to you. That we are born again, not because we prayed the sinner's prayer. It's not because we walked an aisle. It's not because we raised our hand. It's not because we made a choice. It's because God's power and his decision to work that power in your heart to bring you to a new life to impart to you a new life. Next Sunday, we'll talk more about this living hope that we're born into. Uh, Peter says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about this living hope. Here's a hint for next week. This living hope that God grants us is an inheritance that is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading and it's kept in heaven for you. It's waiting for you right now. That living hope will never go away because it was not brought about by your own power, but by God's.